Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen, and it's Tuesday, August 15th. On the docket for this episode is an activist investor putting pressure on a major consumer products giant. We'll also look at some trends from the box office as the summer blockbuster season winds down and how that's affecting some companies in the industry. Joining me today via Skype is SeniorFool.com contributor Asit Sharma. Hey Asit, uh, thanks for being here. Hey Vince, as always, it is great to be with you. Yeah, uh, we have two really uh, good topics, I think, today to talk about. The first one, it's always interesting, I think, uh, to, f- to see how the how activist investors and major shareholders and kind of influenced the goings on at a company. So let's set the stage for our first story. The major consumer products company I mentioned earlier is none other than Procter and Gamble, ticker PG. Uh, obviously, two hundred thirty billion dollar behemoth that's had a that has a very impressive portfolio of leading household brands, including uh, Old Spice, Crest, Tide, and Pampers. So, for any fools who don't follow this company, it's important to know that even though Procter and Gamble boasts about 65 brands right now, that's after the company divested itself of a hundred others in a multi-year effort to kind of streamline the business. Uh, and if you look back 20 or 30 years, uh, PG has been a very good stock for investors with you know market-beating returns, and that includes the legendary dividend. And I say legendary because Procter and Gamble is not only a dividend aristocrat but a dividend king, meaning the company has increased its payout annually for over 50 years, so a very impressive track record. But if you look back just five or ten years, the results are not quite as encouraging. Uh, the stock's kind of lagged the S&P 500. Uh, obviously, on the top line, revenue is down with its various divestitures, but other important metrics like profitability and market share are heading in the wrong direction, too. So, that kind of leaves us with this recent news, then, regarding Nelson Peltz. So, he's the CEO and co-founder of Tryon Partners. Peltz is a pretty well-known activist investor, and in the past, he's made moves on companies like DuPont, PepsiCo, and Wendy's. So, Asit, what is Peltz kind of fighting for right now? So, Vince, Procter & Gamble is this classic stock, which, in the old days, we used to call this a widows and orphans stock meaning thereby it was so safe that even the widows and orphans could put their money in, collect the dividend, and be very happy with the stock appreciation. Uh, that may be politically incorrect in, in this day and age, but it gives you a sense of the history of how old uh, this stock is, how well it's done over the decades. Uh, but again, this 10-year period, tracking returns of Procter & Gamble versus the S&P 500, total returns, Procter & Gamble up 96% over a 10-year period, S&P up 115%. Every time frame that I compared uh, leading uh, up to today to do some research, five-year, three-year, one-year, Procter & Gamble lagged the market on a total return basis. And this is what Pelt's uh, his biggest gripe is, is that this company, which has divested itself of over 100 brands, should be growing again. The purpose was to slough off all those low-growth brands and put money into the ones which will grab market share. And Procter & Gamble really hasn't been able to grab a lot of market share. They have a great mindset for stability, which is the management team loves to pay out those rich dividends and also repurchase shares. It's a very strong cash flow operation. And last year, the company uh, purchased $22 billion uh, or gave shareholders a $22 billion return between share repurchases and the dividends. But that hasn't really translated into stock price movement. 
And this is where Nelson Peltz, who's an expert at agitation and provoking management teams to deliver value to shareholders, sees an opening. He wants to go in and shake up the management, uh, their worldview, to go from this type of stability mindset to an innovation mindset, a market share aggression mindset, a sales growth mindset, which just hasn't characterized the management team over the last 10 years. Yep. So, Pelt right now um, is encouraging shareholders and to basically vote and help put him on the board of directors to help guide the company in the direction uh, that that fits his vision for growth and innovation that you mentioned. Um, and his fund has really ramped up their holdings in Procter & Gamble really just in the first half of this year. Um, at year 2016, um, they only owned about 6 million shares of the company. And as of the fund's latest filing uh, for June 30th, we can see that Peltz holds a stake of 37.6 million shares. So, it's a market value of about $3.4 billion. And while this position makes up about one quarter of the entire fund's portfolio, uh, in terms of the stake of the overall company, it's only about 1.5%. And as part of kind of this battle with management right now, he has a website up with the URL uh, www.revitalizepg.com. And there you can find a lot of information on Peltz, his fund, his problems with current management. And there's a pretty slick presentation on there as well that addresses everything from Procter & Gamble's weak returns and market share, some of the organizational, um, I guess, lack of uh, flexibility, and why and how Peltz thinks he can kind of help the company. So, what do you think might be some of the broad strokes that Peltz lays out to, 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 I guess, boost growth and boost the results at the company? First, I want to say, uh, listeners, this website that Tryon Partners has launched sounds a lot to me like it could be the next big laundry detergent brand for PG. Revitalize. <laughs> Revitalizepg.com. Peltz has an idea, uh, the three avenues he's looking at. His idea is that so shareholder returns have been weak. We want to attack that. Uh, the company has deteriorating, deteriorating market share. We want to attack that problem. And there's excessive cost and bureaucracy. So he's signaling that he will have a focus on product innovation and also the cost structure. Now, it's worth noting that uh, Procter & Gamble's management team has already cut $10 billion out of its cost structure, but the company is so big, this hasn't meaningfully uh, affected their net income. So Peltz will argue for further cuts, but he will also seek innovative ways in which the company can produce that value. One thing that Peltz is extremely uh, good at is uh, pushing spin-offs. In fact, he has a very famous failed example in Mondelez, which is uh, the company which was spun off from Kraft several years ago in 2013. He got a seat on their board and started advocating that Mondelez should itself merge up with PepsiCo's snack division, which is Frito-Lay. So he wanted to break PepsiCo apart into a beverages and a snack company and have Mondelez merge with Frito-Lay. That actually never happened, but his presence on that board created a lot of positive pressure uh, in that management of Mondelez has become even more attuned to pushing their idea of uh, what they call power brands, that is focusing on the brands with the most potential, with already the biggest market share, and pushing those to grow more quickly. So I think there are many ways that he can achieve these objectives 
of great gaining market share and, and hitting the cost structure. But one thing that shareholders might see if he's successful in getting a board seat is this idea of spinning off a division. My take when I kind of started going through this news, doing my research for the company, um, and and all the efforts that it's gone through to streamline its business, uh, you know, ultimately uh, Procter and Gamble has only recently completed its strategic divestitures, and I think when Peltz made kind of public his criticism of their recent performance and his aims for the company, management did fire back with his own press release, uh, pointing to some of the things the company has achieved and lots of other opportunities, I think, to operate more efficiently, uh, and talking about things like uh, reorganization, reducing expenses. You mentioned their $10 billion of cost-cutting efforts. Uh, the company expects to cut as much as another $10 billion over the next five years. But uh, I guess my question here is, do you think it's fair, I guess, to argue that maybe it's too soon to say that these efforts have failed. That Peltz is kind of jumping the gun. That despite the, you know the weak uh, returns that we've seen over one, three, five-year periods, you know the the divestitures of those hundred brands, for example, only recently completed. The management needs more time, maybe another year or two, to execute on the turnaround. You know the margins for this company are still quite strong for its industry, and and you said uh, you know it's a cash cow generates. Um, uh, plenty of capital to return to shareholders. Should the company have another year or two, maybe, to show improving results before uh, you know an activist investor like this jumps in and really shakes things up? Yeah, personally, I think you've got a point. I mean, P&G has a rel- relatively new CEO, uh, David Taylor, has only been on board for a few years, and this whole divestiture uh, move has taken place over the last couple of years. So there's very much. Uh, one point of view, which says that, look, it may take two to three years, but if you're patient with P&G, they could see some appreciable returns from a strategy of divesting from brands that made up a very small part of the profit and focusing on what really drives the economic engine of Procter & Gamble. But this is the nature of activist investors. They rarely seem to come in at the right time. They often come in at a time which catches everyone off guard. And I think this is the nature of how they attack. And we should mention that uh, this battle of the press releases has evolved one step further in that uh, Tryon is actually waging a proxy battle now. They're asking the shareholders to vote because Procter & Gamble's management obviously wants to do just what you've suggested, which is, hey, let's see our investments bear some fruit. I mean, give us a chance to breathe here. We just completed these you know, major uh, divestitures and sales, and we're focused now. Don't come in at this point right when we're beginning to see the uh, fruit of our strategy. So it's up to the shareholders now to vote whether Peltz can obtain a seat on the board or not. And it's pretty quickly moving into a, that acrimonious juncture we've seen many times between activist investors and a board and a management team which feels very confident in what they're doing. So it'll it'll be interesting to watch as we go forward for sure. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, continue to follow the developments from this back and forth between Peltz and management. Um, and I think that even if Peltz ultimately fails to win a place on the board uh, like he hopes, um, something that you alluded to earlier, Asset, is the idea that you know he's leaning on management now to basically uh, show the shareholders some progress and I think put some pressure on them to take steps that they wouldn't otherwise otherwise, you know, without this pressure from outside of the company. And I would argue for 
that for maybe for a large, you know, less nimble uh, organization like Procter and Gamble, just that the scale and size they operate at, that's not necessarily a bad thing, and it could result in some uh, some positive developments for the company and its investors. So, turning now to our second topic for today, uh, we are just two weekends away from the end of the summer blockbuster season, uh, which starts in May and wraps up with Labor Day. And so far, results are looking weaker for some of the many franchise installments and reboots and superhero movies that have hit theaters this season. Um, but before we dive in, Asit, uh, what were the last couple movies you actually saw in theaters? I'm just curious. So I'm going to confess, I, I um, maybe some of our listeners will remember from a podcast several months ago, but I've had my head buried in books uh, this year. It's the first year in a while that I haven't been to the theater and seen a blockbuster film. I will say, though, my uh, oldest son, uh, his latest film was uh, Baby Driver. He and his friends saw that together, and he's been playing songs from the soundtrack. It's excellent. So, I'm definitely going to see Baby Driver, and as a family, we're going to get to Wonder Woman before the summer opens. I can tell you what's on our slate to see. How about you, Vince? What what, what have you seen this summer? So, the last movie I saw in theaters was Atomic Blonde, uh, which was very good. Kind of, uh, uh, I think, a movie that is they were hoping would ride off the popularity of uh, the John Wick series. But I think what you mentioned in terms of not really making it to the theaters recently uh, points to some of the bigger picture trends that we might touch on here. But I'm curious, you know, as a follow-up, you mentioned that you want to see Wonder Woman. You want to uh, have a family outing at some point. Like, Are the theaters that you usually have in mind now for that kind of experience your standard first-come, first-serve um, uh, kind of theater, or is it one of the newer operations where there's like assigned premium seating? You might be able to get uh, more food and drinks as well with the movie. What do you guys kind of go toward or lean towards in terms of that experience? Yeah, so we're a family of five, so we tend to be pretty budget conscious. The experience, uh, which in, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we've got a number of new film theaters popping up. So the experience of going and having that premium seating. And food, it's something that my teenage sons are all interested in. But as a family, we still uh, catch the matinee when we can. We try to go to uh, a nicer, newer theater. Raleigh has a, just a great um, panoply of vintage theaters, uh, mainline theaters, which are in good condition, renovated theaters, and then this upper premium uh, type of experience that you're talking about. So for us, Family Five, we're going to hit the matinee at one of the major chains, uh, AMC. Um, Regal, that type. And, and throw it back to you. What type of theater are you going to these days? Then? So I've, I've been in, in the city here in, in uh, DC, there's a few different options from your standard, you know, first come, first serve to uh, the smaller theaters with maybe just like 25 seats, uh, for example, where it's assigned seating, very plush, uh, very kind of, uh, I guess, more of a premium experience. But ultimately, uh, just the f- you know, going back to what you mentioned in terms of this being one of your first trips to the theater for this year, I think like if we look at this industry from a 10,000 foot level and start drilling down, the big thing to keep in mind is that ticket sales volume has been going down year after year, but rising average ticket prices are able to prop up kind of some of the total box office receipts. So, on the one hand, uh, we have uh, we have moviegoers like you who haven't made it in for a long time, maybe just not that happy with the slate that's out there. On the other hand, you know, I uh, really like going out to see movies, and I'm kind of 
propping up that average, helping to prop up that average ticket price, paying a little bit of the premium for an IMAX film uh, to see Dunkirk, for example, or to get that assigned seating. But just so far in 2017, to give our listeners an idea of what's going on, can Asa, can you give us a quick rundown of the industry revenue year to date and kind of some of the big titles that have been leading uh, leading the box office? Sure. So I gathered some data from Box Office Mojo, which is a great source to go if you want a quick view of what the movie industry is doing. This is the domestic industry. The gross box office receipts to date, uh, as of August 13th, are $7.18 billion. And that's about 4.3% off last year's pace. So significant drop-off when, as you say, Vince, you have to have both uh, ticket sales and these increasing receipts, uh, increasingly expensive ticket prices to maintain a similar take as the last year. Uh, places are led by uh, Buena Vista, which is Disney Studio, Beauty and the Beast, of course, $504 million year to date. And number two is that film that I want to catch, Wonder Woman, $402 million. Now, I'm going to uh, read for listeners the next three uh, for a reason. There's um, Guardians of the Galaxy, it's $389 million take year to date. Sony's Spider-Man Homecoming, which is $306 million. And Despicable Me 3, which is Universal's film, $248 million. If you add these five films together, you come up with $1.85 billion, And that is 25% of total box office receipts to date this year. So five films make up one quarter of total receipts. And I was surprised to see this when I, when I came across the, the stats because you, you hear on uh, any of our um, listeners – hear box office receipts through the year on public radio, perhaps. We read about in the paper that this industry depends on blockbuster films. And that is, in large measure, true. That a certain part of the revenue, in fact, the foundation of it, is built on just a few films each year. One film can make a difference between that 4.3% uh, we were just mentioning from the prior year, uh, which sort of surprised me. And I know Vince, uh, if, if that's something that you're familiar with, uh, or you know, have, took you by surprise as well. well, I think the big thing to note is, uh, f- so you know, the first movie beating the beast, second one being Wonder Woman, but ultimately, and then the other three, I believe, were all sequels, franchise installments. But the idea being, you know, these are all uh, kind of established properties and IP that is able that are able to get audiences into theaters. And you know, once again, we have Walt Disney. Leading the major studios in the box office uh, in terms of uh, ticket sale or ticket uh, box office receipts, and you know it was the same in 2016. You know Universal and Warner Brothers are trailing closely, um, and though the summer season has been particularly weak, um, the actual results, as you mentioned, are only off from last year by about four percent. But if we look past the studios, um, in terms, you know, from more of an investing perspective, it's really interesting to see that box office down 4%, but the three major theater chains are all in the red in terms of their share prices for 2017. Um, some of them quite a bit so. Can you give us uh, a quick rundown of what's going on with the theater, uh, the big theater operators out there? Sure. So AMC, this is the one that's going to surprise everyone. It's down nearly 60% year to date. Of course, if you own it, that won't surprise you. You'll be familiar with that already. Cinemark down 18%, and the stock price of Regal Cinemas 
is down roughly 6%. And I'd like to focus on AMC because if you read the headlines about movie receipts and you're a shareholder and see that the company has plunged 60%, you might be tempted to say, wow, you know, this, this is really hurting bad, this drop off in the box office receipts. What happens if we have a down year next year? Is my stock going to zero? Let's dig in. So AMC has had an ambition to grow and they become the largest domestic uh, theater operator. I, th I think they're also at this point the, the world's largest uh, theater operator. They've got now 1,000 theaters with 11,000 screens in 15 countries. But they did this in large measure by making three major acquisitions over roughly the past year. Uh, one that our listeners will be familiar with is Carmike Cinemas. So in making these acquisitions, AMC has leveraged its balance sheet. It's got now about $4.3 billion in debt. And that interest expense paying uh, on that debt is part of the financial equation, which propelled them to $176 million loss last quarter. So the combination of lower receipts and this leverage is hurting maybe what, what is an over-ambitious chain for now. And I know, Vince, if you follow AMC or had a chance to look at the stocks, what are your thoughts about this interplay between their seats and what the company has done to um, become this leading theater operator? Is it, is it worth it? Uh, that's a tough one for me. So if you're, if you're an investor in, the, in these theater operators, you know, something you'll uh, you'll know, and if you're not, that you have to keep in mind is that uh, they have you kind of fundamentally don't have as much control over the product that you're selling. You know, the studios are the content creators and and kind of driving that part of the equation. But these companies, uh, a lot of their pro their their bottom line comes from the perks that they sell you in terms of the concessions and in terms of the experience. Uh, whether they're t whether it might be uh, th with 3D, uh, with a 3D viewing, with IMAX, or with premium seating, or whatever it may be, but uh, you know another company uh, kind of similar that has struggled this year, uh, like AMC, and is in a similar position is with IMAX, which is down 40% year to date, um, some of its lowest levels in the past five years, and the company's laying off employees and. Ultimately, they are similarly feeling the pain from poor trends in the industry. And for example, uh, near-term headwinds like 3D losing its popularity, and then uh, the fact that you know revenue from 3D ticket sales, for example, has declined steadily from their high back in 2010, and uh, just in general losing their share of box office revenue, at least domestically. And you know, a company like IMAX is still depends on expanding into more theaters for growth, but then you have uh, some of the operators like AMC looking to other perks like uh, concessions, seating, um, as ways to bring in uh, theater goers rather than upgrading their screens to IMAX. So there's all these different players here in this industry, and it, it's it is interesting to see kind of how they deal with uh, what right now is a four percent off year, but a very slow summer season, and that timing. I think for AMC has hurt them particularly, as you mentioned, as they pick up, uh, as, they've, as they've made these three large acquisitions. Um, but looking out further, I think we've had episodes in the past where we talk about uh, competing uh, entertainment alternatives, uh, the fact that ticket sales do go down year after year, and a lot of people um, 
are kind of ready to start writing the obituary, I think, to an extent uh, on, on the idea of people going out to see movies. But uh, I think if you're even looking at uh, 20, 30, 40 years, barring some crazy technological innovation in terms of how people consume uh, consume movies, I, I think this is something that is a long-term kind of sustainable business that and these theater operators and the content creators as well will kind of be able to adapt and make things work. Uh, a lot of people might think that theater operators, uh, you know, that that it's fa- that their kind of space is fading. But overall, you know, they they find their ways. Whether it was through 3D, whether it was through IMAX, now through other things like concessions, to kind of bounce back and 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 keep keep their growth going. Yeah, I just want to make one quick. Uh, point. I think it's excellent point. I just want to reiterate that. I also believe that over the long term, this industry is going to continue to grow and they'll find ways like the premium concessions, premium seating uh, to adapt. At the end of the day, you know, it depends on the content and that comes in waves. Sometimes the content is great and movie receipts are awesome for three, three years running. And sometimes you have an off year. But as humans, we love to get out. At, at the end of a long week, there's almost nothing more fun if there's a great film in the theater. And I'm thinking ahead to actually The Last Jedi, for example. I'm, I can't wait to see that film. So we have to get out and have this experience of going to the theater. It's so much fun. And I think this industry is going to be around. I think AMC will overcome its its near-term problems, although it's, um, and, and also IMAX, although this year it's, you haven't been very happy if you've been holding these shares. They'll recover, and the industry itself is is going to do well over the long term. Yep, it, it, for, for a company like IMAX, um, we've seen it in the results for in the past. For example, it can be a single huge hit, can shift their shift all of their um, their kind of prospects and their results for a single quarter. Um, it can have that much of an impact in terms of just a single title. So, you know, the volatility is, is there and not ideal, but not necessarily a a deal breaker in my opinion. Um, So that wraps up our discussion for today. Um, Thank you, Asif, for joining us. Um, I will definitely follow up with you once uh, we have updates on the situation with Peltz and the Procter & Gable team. Awesome. Sounds great. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program. Thank you for listening, and Fool on.